0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor, and I want to thank you for watching today's broadcast. Now, I invite you to join in the worship of God.
1: Our first lesson comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter two, verses four through 13. Let us listen now for God's word to us at this time. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness and a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives? I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Our gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 14, which can be found on 72, page 72, in the New Testament section of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. I'll be reading verses one and seven through 14, which is our lectionary reading for today. Listen for God's word. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. If we were to look at Jesus' behavior at this Sabbath dinner party in today's scripture and hold it up either to the standards of the Pharisees, to the standards of Roman society in which they lived, or to to today's post-family etiquette standards, he would fail both Sabbath training and the cotillion. In Roman culture at this time, a dinner party was not merely a social event during which people shared a meal. Invitations among this group of Pharisees were likely exclusive to begin with, and then even more layers of hierarchy were stacked on top once the guests arrived. Tables were arranged concentrically, with the host in the center, the most honored guests around him, the next honored guests in the next circle, and so on. The host was literally the center of attention with everyone else surrounding, Without the literal height of a theater, this put people in kind of seating levels from the equivalent of a box seat to the orchestra level to the mezzanine and all the way up to the nosebleed section of the fourth balcony. Another way to think about this would be to visualize a modern formal wedding reception with this table, this long table in the front, surrounded by the bridal party with immediate family members around that. So then on the next seats would probably be some more distant relatives and close friends, and then more distant people would be in the back and perhaps invited last to go to the buffet. But at the end of the day, everyone at that reception would be eating the same food, drinking the same wine, enjoying the same celebration. But at a Roman party, if you were not an honored guest and you were seated on those outside areas that are farther and farther away from the center, your food and beverages were likely farther and farther away from tasty. Not only would you get served last, but you would likely get the stale leftovers and the vinegary wine. You would be staring into the center of this circle, where the hosts and honored guests would probably be reclining on comfortable cushions next to the table, eating some grapes, drinking fine wine, and as my New Testament professor put it, getting a foot massage with some sort of soothing goop. So those who were not honored guests would be far away physically from the center as well as far away from those important conversations happening as well. I don't think the authorities on Pharisee etiquette were anywhere near pleased with Jesus' behavior at this particular party in Luke that we encounter today. The Pharisees were, after all, trying to be the etiquette experts for the law passed down from Moses at this time. A small but eventually powerful sect among people of the Jewish faith, the Pharisees sought to bring clarity and detailed understanding to the laws set forth in the Torah. After all, those laws were vague. Some of the Ten Commandments, like the third one, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, are rather general commandments. So no wonder, then, the Pharisees tried to develop more specific rules about how far one could walk on the Sabbath and what kind of work was permissible on the Sabbath. We all seek ways of fully understanding these rules ourselves. So they wrote all these details down so people would have a reference for what to do in particular situations that might cause them to question one of these commandments from God. It was very important to follow these commandments. So, this book of etiquette for their society was quite important. Before Jesus enters the chief Pharisee's house for this dinner, the lectionary kind of skips this part, but he criticizes the entire dinner party, basically. Right outside the door, he heals a man with a sort of edema like condition called dropsy. By doing this healing work on the Sabbath, Jesus Jesus is basically saying without saying to the Pharisees that the details they wrote down about Sabbath-keeping may not be the end-all, be-all of God's law. By his action of healing and by his words to the Pharisees, Jesus calls them out on how their version of Emily Post's latest etiquette book causes them to lose sight of why the rules exist in the first place. I'm surprised they still let Jesus in at that point, but they do, and things only get worse from here. Jesus then starts focusing on the guests. When they go inside, the first thing Jesus notices is that all the guests are rushing for those center seats. Everyone is vying for the honor of the plush cushions and fine food and foot massages. And so, with a not-so-subtle parable, he caused the guests self-exultant for pushing for those seats. And then, as if chiding the guests for their self-importance isn't enough to make everyone uncomfortable, Jesus turns to focus on the host himself, telling him that he invited all the wrong people in the first place. I think it's safe to assume at this point that Jesus has absolutely spoiled the Pharisees' dinner party. If you look a little ahead just after this passage in Luke, when Jesus is finally done with these lessons that he's teaching, one of the Pharisees blurts out, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It would be like someone trying to clear the air in the middle of an intense discussion at a dinner party today with how about them braves? Indeed, Jesus creates a moment that is at best socially awkward and at worst completely unacceptable. Whether ancient or modern, by anyone's definition, Jesus was definitely not polite. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't want to invite Jesus to my dinner parties anymore if this behavior typified his dinner party demeanor. It would be easy to isolate the most memorable soundbite from Jesus in this story to keep ourselves comfortable and focus on that particular phrase, ignoring all of these uncomfortable social foibles Jesus puts in. If we were to pick out that one quote, it would be so easy for us to get the impression that all we were being asked to do is sit in the least honorable seats, and we would get moved right on up to the gourmet food and plush cushions and foot massages. If we just let the host tell us where to sit rather than picking our seats ourselves, we will get seated in the places of honor. We would perhaps assume that it's maybe not wrong to choose those comfy seats, just a little etiquette rule that makes us not so rude if we choose the lower seats first. But you and I know that when we reduce Jesus' words to sound bites to make the dinner party feel a little bit more comfortable, we miss out on the full breadth and depth of the gospel. It's not just about a dinner party here. It's not just about table arrangements and invitations. It's about where we locate ourselves in that concentric hierarchy and how that affects the way we see people and the way others see us. It affects how we see those who seem to be radically different from us, but in reality are all created in the same image of God. How we see things from our vantage point in the dinner hall deeply affects who we believe ourselves to be and who we believe to be welcome at the dinner party. I know that in my own life I have been located at different places in that dinner party and I imagine anyone here might have located themselves in any of those number of places as well. So where is your table? Where have you been and where are you now? You may have sat at different places in different parts of your life. Maybe there was a time that you sat in the inner circle, but by your own choice or by circumstances beyond your control, you ended up in the outer circle. You grew accustomed to the good food and social access and foot massages, but something happened that pushed you out of that position. So you've had to learn how to dine on the outside circle had to tenderize the old meat and water down the vinegary wine. You've had to make friends with new kinds of people, the kinds that may not be expressing opinions you share, the, the kind that may not have the most impeccable table manners. Or maybe you've moved out of the outer circle into the inner circle. Maybe you remember a time that you were out there, but now you're comfortably in the center and you've had to learn a new set of table manners, but it's also a lot more comfortable. You've moved away from the sparse tables into an impeccably decorated space with soft cushions and polite company. Maybe you remember what it's like at those outside tables, and maybe that causes you to invite those outside people in closer Or maybe you forgot what that's like. Or maybe you're eating somewhere in the middle. You're comfortable where you are, but you don't have someone massaging your feet either. The food is okay, and you have like a $3 bottle of midweek wine from Kroger. The people sitting around you don't necessarily say rude things or talk with their mouth open, but they probably use the wrong fork and make some noise when somebody says something that affects them personally. You don't really have a desire to be in that inner circle, but you'd rather not fall to the outer ring either. And if people come join you at your table, you're likely to welcome them, unless they're really out there. But there's no need to reach out deliberately. Or maybe you have never known anything but the outermost circle. You're probably too far away to hear the conversations happening in the middle. You may not have access to the connections in the middle. Here it's more like a theater for you, watching the people in the center, seeing how comfortable they are, maybe wanting to eat some of their fancy food and get a foot massage, and thinking about how much easier your life would be if you were at that middle table. Or maybe you have only known that innermost table, either as a host or an honored guest. You see the outer circles and know that that's not a place where you want to be. Bringing those people into the inner circle might spoil things for others at your table, even though maybe you want to invite them in. So that creates a level of fear about bringing others to that table. Regardless of where we sit, Regardless of where we are, our location determines how we perceive the rest of the dinner party from out to in. Our location determines who invites us to come join them, as well as who we ask to join us. Our location determines everything we know about people who don't sit where we do, as well as the stereotypes others may have about us. The composition of those sitting at our table determines how people react to our manners and how we react to theirs. Our location at the dinner party determines who we sit with and thereby determines the rules about who we believe ourselves to be, how we believe we need to act, what we think we are allowed to talk about, and who we can invite to sit with us. And all these kinds of rules are usually not written down in an etiquette book. But when you and I are no longer the hosts at the dinner party, when our etiquette books are no longer dictating where the host and guests are to sit, when our own social connections and goals are no longer determining the goals of who gets invited in the first place, we give Jesus the chance to be the host. And when Jesus is the host, everybody gets invited. When we have this, I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine, quid pro quo, returning invitation for invitation, favor for favor, Jesus has an open invitation that need only be responded to. Where we have notions of what kind of people belong at which table, Jesus has one open table where all are fed with the same bread and nourished with the same cup. And Jesus concerns himself especially with making sure those who did not get invited or those who are sitting on those outside tables are invited into that middle table and have a way to get there. Jesus doesn't just want to invite more people in. He wants those who come to the feast, everyone to be seen, heard, and understood. And that's why he's telling the invited guests to move aside for a moment and give the honored seats to those who have not had a voice there in the center before. And when we do that, we all move closer to the center. We all move closer and closer to those honored seats in God's kingdom. Our dinner party starts to look more and more like Jesus is the host. In Ghana, where I lived for a year as a Presbyterian young adult volunteer, meals start with the washing of the right hand, the hand always used to eat. A bowl of water and bottle of soap are presented to each table or group of guests. And if you're a guest in someone's home, you can just show up. If the person you're visiting is not at home, you're given a shady spot to rest. And when that person arrives home, finally, they greet you and take you into the house, offering you a seat inside. And after about 30 minutes of conversation, the host finally says, Akwaba, welcome. At that point, you're offered water or soda. And then after some more conversation happens, a meal appears, but only for the guest. Generally, people do not talk to each other while they eat, and so the host watches the guest eat this meal and enjoy the food that's being offered. In other places, there is an an option to invite others to eat with you and actually talk while you eat. But when you're a guest in someone's home, you are in that situation an honored guest, and to put the food back toward your host would be considered rude. But in situations where only one or two people are eating at a given time, and especially where people of varying economic situations and food access are sitting together, such as a break room at work, the person eating will raise his or her bowl to each person, smiling and saying, you are invited. This means more than you are invited to share your food with me. It also means you are invited to join me at my corner of the table for conversation exclusive to those sharing this meal. But everyone is invited. No one is left out. This is not picked by the person raising their bowl. Everyone is invited to share. So you could have six or eight people hovered over the same small bowl of food sharing conversation and a meal together. Those who don't have as much access to food, are dining with those who have food whenever they are hungry. Everyone is eating together in that same bowl. Thirteen years later, I can still see it. I can still see the staff room at this church school where I worked. I can still see the people sitting at this long table and one person raising her bowl to that group of staff, looking each person in the eye and saying, you are invited. That's what happens when Jesus is the host. He looks around to see who's at the table, making sure that everyone is in the center, raising the cup and the plate to everyone, smiling, saying, you are a child of God. You are invited. Amen. as we go from this place rejoicing, rejoice knowing that we are all made in the image of God and that regardless of where we are sitting now, where we have sat in the past, where we will sit in the future, God is inviting all to this center table. Let us rejoice with gladness in all of that. And as we go from this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit go with us all now and forevermore. Amen.